Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast. I'm your podcast host, Dr. Raj Palkaran. Uh, more importantly, today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Sharada Sugirtaraja, who is an honorary senior research fellow uh, in the Department of Theology and Religion at University of Birmingham, Birmingham England. Uh, Sharada, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for the invitation. Great. We are talking about a, a, a recent uh, Rutledge uh, studies and religion series publication called Religious and Non-Religious Perspectives on Happiness and Well-Being. Now, you have to tell us the backstory about this. How did you come about to, to where did this idea come from? <laughs> That's quite interesting. Um, um, sometime, some years ago, I don't know, it could be 2016 or 17, um, uh, a leaflet was being circulated uh, at the university it had something like MA in philosophy of happiness and health. So I, ha- I chanced upon it. I read, read the pamphlet and I thought um, uh, it's quite interesting. And uh, they had, at that point in time, there was no mention of religious studies or religion. There was mention of philosophy and public policy and things like that. It just occurred to me, well, it, and a lot of, a lot of talk about happiness was going on at that point in time. And I thought, let me just find out what this happiness is about. And I thought I was particularly interested to see if uh, religions have to say anything about it or religious traditions. So I organized a conference uh, to test the waters. But before I organized the conference, I did a quick Google search and uh, found that uh, you know, it has ga- that it had gained enormous attention in various disciplines like psychology, um, health, education, uh, and many other and other disciplines, and even in philosophy to some extent. But there was absolutely no mention of um, religion or religious or theological studies. And uh, I was particularly interested to see what religions themselves had to say about happiness. Of course, um, most traditions talk about it in the context of salvation, liberation, or nirvana. In that context, the kind of spiritual happiness one talks about. But there was a lot of literature on the link between happiness and religiosity, as well as there was a contentious link between happiness and religiosity. And there were plenty of uh, journal articles uh, and perhaps some books too. But then I really could not, I searched and I found, I think I mentioned in my introduction, three or four books. One is on the Sikh understanding of happiness and the other one, philosophies of happiness. And of course, in the Buddhist context, Dalai Lama's uh, The Art of Happiness. And uh, I can't remember, the Oxford Book of Happiness, no doubt. And the Oxford Book of Happiness, it's quite quite vast. It 
it deals with Buddhist, Hindu, and various form of Buddhist and Chinese um, perceptions of happiness. Then I was, then I wanted to explore, that's the starting point. So I wanted to explore. Uh, so therefore, you know, I organized a conference to see and, um, and it was received well. Uh, and that's how it, it uh, I think I didn't think of the book to begin with initially, you know what I mean? It was my personal interest, let's put it that way. It was my personal interest. So, uh, and then I reflect on it, reflected on it. And then I thought it'd be a good idea to plan a book. And then I had to enlist more contributors because I had, it's a very small conference and I had seven and five, five were a part of this book. And then another six or seven, I had to um, really look for. And I had some very good contributors and who are all um, distinguished specialists in their own respective fields, as, as you can see from, from, from the list of contributors. Table of contents, yes. So, so um, that's how it started. So the, so the title is a Religious and Non-Religious Perspectives. Yeah. What are the religious perspectives included and what are the non-religious perspectives included? Yeah, the religious perspectives include um, Hinduism, Buddhism, uh, Judaism, Christianity, uh, and Confucianism. And um, I think five religions, as it was five religions. Um, we wanted to, I wanted to include Sikhism and indigenous traditions as well as Jainism. And it was during COVID time. So it was not easy to get, um, you know, people who would be able to commit to uh, writing. So therefore I could not include, so about five traditions and non-religious traditions include uh, humanism, uh, positive psychology, psychiatry and uh, atheism, not in the sense of talking what atheists think about God, that particular uh, chapter is about a survey conducted by um, two people, one in Canada, one in the US, uh, to find whether there's a link between religion and happiness. So, so you could say non-religion, so non-religious perspective. So about five non-religious perspectives and about six religious perspectives. And Islam too, by the way, I forgot to mention that. So it's, you actually are the contributor for the Hindu uh, perspective, perspectives on happiness. And interestingly enough, you also contributed the, the, um, the inaugural chapter on humanism. So maybe speak to both, maybe since, since you were actually the contributor. Now tell us about um, Hindu perspectives on happiness. Oh, it's a vast field, isn't it? Um, well, oh yeah, only a, only a few millennia yeah. of thought there. Yeah. Well, first of all, we all know about the diversity within the tradition, and uh, there are various terms used for the term happiness and as well as for well-being, like ulasa, santosh, sukha, and so many other words. I shan't go into all those. And of course, we have philosophical perspectives. We have theistic perspective. And we have monistic perspective uh, on, on happiness. Of course, I'm, I'm talking about spiritual happiness. So if you are talking about spiritual happiness, then the monistic tradition talks about the Atman and the Brahman 
and it's it talks about um, the universe itself has has emerged out of bliss. So the Atman in us is is also uh, how to put it. The Atman is also not a spark of the divine. That's more perhaps uh, uh, it's the Atman itself can, is is Ananda. Let's put it. So the self merging with Brahman is is an experience for Ananda, joy, and the divine is termed as is called Satchitananda, isn't it? Satchitananda. So in the monistic tradition, it's more of merging of the self, the universal self, and this self, as all of us know, is linked to many other selves. So it's a kind of a non-duality. And of course, various Upanishads talk about this, um, that in fact, terms like Leela and Maya are used. Of course, Maya has a negative connotation in one sense, but on the other hand, it has also a positive connotation in that the whole world, it's through the creative power of the divine, the world has come into existence. So the Leela, the concept of Leela itself um, brings the idea of cheerfulness, brings the idea of sport. So in one sense, the world has come out of bliss, out of this ananda. So the aim of perhaps life uh, or rather spiritual life is to seek ananda of that kind. Of course, there are different kinds of ananda. The material happiness is one thing. And of course, Upanishads, you know, the, uh, one of the Upanishads speaks about um, the discussion between uh, Yagnavalkya and Maitri about uh, the wife asking him whether all the riches in the world would bring her happiness. And of course, he says, of course not. And he says, it's one must love one's wife, brother, sister, or whatever it is, or friend, not for what he or she is, but for the love of the self in each one of us. So it's a kind of, uh, it's not as a doctrine or creed, but more a kind of an awakening of one's deeper self. And that deep awakening of the deeper self is very important. It, that's what brings nirvana, that's what brings liberation in the monistic tradition. Um, and in the theistic tradition, um, one speaks in terms of um, relationship. Uh, and in the Indian tradition, as you very well know, there are different kinds of relationship with a personal deity of God. And uh, Krishna is a good example. Krishna Leela and how Krishna dances with gopis. And again, there's a kind of a sport there that the divine uh, gives impression uh, that everyone, uh, not the impression, rather the divine wants us to know perhaps that each one of us is precious. So therefore we have um, many examples of poetry within the Indian tradition, uh, uh, like ranging from Mirabai and her, you know, it's like uh, a kind of a spiritual divine love where God becomes the, the what do you call, the partner, one spiritual partner, so to speak, in a mystical sense of the term. And so there are different kinds of love within the Indian tradition and uh, right from Andal and various bhakti poets have exemplified that and including some of the South Indian uh, uh, Alvas and Nayanmas have spoken about service to God. And some of them even have said they don't want nirvana, they don't want liberation. They've been deeply touched by the sorrows of humanity that they want to be reborn and in order to serve humanity 
as well as God. So even I understand even Vivekananda, uh, when he heard, a, uh, I think in one of the Puranas, I forget which Purana, where one of the kings, um, he was quite um, saddened by the plight of uh, his devotees, the plight of his subjects, because there was a famine or something. And, um, and they were suffering enormously. And his prayer was that he did not want uh, freedom from this world, but he wanted to be reborn so that he could participate in the sufferings of people and relieve them of the suffering. So there are these bhakti poets for whom happiness is not simply going to Brahmaloka, but to be able to, to come back. Maybe they're a minority, not many of them though, okay? would want to come back. And so happiness and suffering are two sides of the same coin for these bhakti poets. And for many people, even in ordinary life, I would imagine so. How might happiness look in a Buddhist context? Well, in the Buddhist context, as, as we know, the Buddhists don't talk about God or there's no metaphysical. Buddha does not um, speculate about uh, God or the divine. And uh, it's awakening to one's own Buddha nature because they don't talk about self. So awakening to one's Buddha nature becomes extremely important in the Buddhist tradition. So to be able to show compassion um, and, uh, and Buddhists have been engaged uh, uh, in different ways through mindful meditation and through engaged Buddhism recent. Uh, and we have various Buddhist monks from different parts of the world uh, who have been very conscious of uh, the socioeconomic conditions too. And uh, Peter Harvey uh, brings that very clearly in his, uh, in his chapter. And he, he's one of those uh, specialists uh, in Buddhism. And do we wanna say a quick word perhaps about Taoism and Taoist perspectives? Yeah, so it's one of the books, um, I can't pronounce the, the, the particular book, and the author, she uh, beautifully brings in this notion of a holistic approach to happiness. And um, whether there is, and in fact, she focuses on one of the books within the text, within the, within the main book called Supreme Happiness or something. And she, is there, the question is, is there something called supreme happiness? And how do we attain it? And she goes on to discuss Dao's understanding of happiness, which is very, as I said, very holistic. Then the important thing is to be in tune with Dao, the ultimate, and, and to be in tune with the natural world. So there's no dichotomy or separation between the sacred and the secular world. So one in, so in one sense, um, so that is the main thing to be in tune with Dao. And, and also, and she also talks about, she refers to um, something similar that we talk in the Bhagavad Gita, desireless action, nishkama karma. Uh, and she talks about actionless action. And it is not to be affected by external circumstances to be able to maintain a sense of uh, calmness uh, in the face of uh, obstacles or sufferings. So she, and she also talks about, talks about um, heart fasting meditation 
and other kind of meditation where you sit in stillness. Um, of course, in both the traditions, we in Buddhist tradition and in this tradition, understanding the nature of the reality is very important. And um, so is that enough or so? Yeah, sure, absolutely. Uh, we'll, we'll touch on. I'm just some trying to recall from my, you know. Recall. Oh, it's it's quite all right, folks. Folks will have access to the, the link to the book in the podcast notes, and they'll also see the table of contents. Indeed, and I'm sure interested folks will dive in at their convenience. But let's talk maybe a little bit about, and just while we're touching on the religious perspectives, there are of course chapters on uh, Judaism, Christianity, and um, yeah. and and Islam. Um, uh, Beyond the, the particular religious perspectives that are discussed in the book, um, there are non-religious perspectives. I mean, you start off talking about humanism. So what might a humanistic pursuit of happiness look like? Yeah, see, I, I found the humanistic perspective very, very interesting and very appealing when I read Andrew Copson's uh, um, chapter. He's, uh, he's a very uh, leading humanist in the UK, and a chief executive of the Humanist Association. And he also has contributed uh, on this particular topic. Um, and I think it's what is very interesting is that humanists also have a sense of transcendence. They may not talk about religious transcendence and all these non-religious perspectives in general talk, talk about awe-inspiring experiences as well as sense of transcendence that's why you know, uh, in one. That's why I don't want to make this segregation between the sacred and secular. And humanists, what is very interesting is, although they don't talk in terms of afterlife, they don't believe in afterlife. But for them, death brings meaning to life, and that I found very, very. I think it deeply touched me that most people think of happiness or uh, ultimate happiness. If you can't get it in this life, you can get it somewhere else. In. Um, and whereas the, 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 the humanists hit, you know, just come straight to the point. They said, everyone, uh, happiness is not for, for some. All of us have equal claim to happiness, Copson says. And although death is a, the finality of life does not cancel the meaning of life, rather it enhances the meaning of life for humanists. And they have been very keen and also humanists as well as all other religion non-religious perspectives in the in the book talk about both personal and collective happiness so i think that is what unites all the chapters you know there's a sense of uh, there are four or five factors that unite all the chapters uh, religious and non-religious um and um and the humanists have been um, involved in uh, Writing the wrongs, and they have uh, they believe strongly in social justice, uh, and they think we cannot be happy unless we are able to make others happy. See, we might some of us uh, religious people might use religious categories to talk about uh, bringing happiness to other people. Uh, for example, Hindus would say the divine spark uh, is in each one of us, so each one of us is worthy of respect. But I think for humanists, humanity is a starting point. And I, 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 I'm very, I mean, I'm very deeply fascinated by that. And, and in fact, that has been my starting point, let's put it for this book, uh, not starting so much with God or religion or anything, that humanity is a starting point. And here humanists um, justify uh, 
uh, how one can be happy um, without God. Um, and I don't see any reason why one cannot be happy without God. People can be happy with God and without God. And there's what more to it. Huh? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's more to it. What about, um, what does Liz Gulliford say in yeah. terms of uh, well, psychological perspective of happiness? Yeah, so, so I think she gives an introduction to positive psychology. And as much as she's appreciative of um, the, the uh, positive, uh, uh, what do you call it, positive um, character strengths, that's Martin's Seligman uh, talks about um, in his books. And also I think it's in 1998, his inaugural address in America, he talked about um, the positive strengths. Uh, and of course it's, uh, in fact, the point is uh, as much as, uh, what her, uh, her point is that uh, although positive psychology talks about uh, collective happiness, um, it does not really, in one sense, uh, 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 take it further. It's much later with the second wave of positive psychology, Paul Wong, he talks about deeper kind of happiness, uh, which means turning the negative into positive. Uh, it's not simply turning the negative into positive, but to be able to see meaning in suffering. So which the positive psychology somehow, they were trying to move away from the negativity and they perhaps emphasized according to Liz, and I agree with her, uh, the positivity to an extreme, uh, the, toxic of, the toxic of positivity. Um, and it's almost like, you know, we are blamed for um, having feelings which are not positive. And I think this has been challenged by many people. This positive psychology stance on, on this positivity has been challenged by many scholars. And Liz provides um, uh, an excellent uh, in introduction to, to, to positive psychology. And also she says that it's important that uh, um, in this her chapter, she discusses about two things, hope and gratitude. And she says positive psychology can be enriched by some of the religious um, uh, concepts. So therefore she's trying to bring uh, religious and secular perspectives into conversation in her book. So she talks about Thomas Aquinas, Paul Tillich, and the hope is not something personal as much as it can be personal. It is also interpersonal, she says. She also says we are all co-workers, she says, okay? And, and, and she, so therefore she's very keen that the collective dimension of happiness, which is exemplified in these philosophers, Paul Tillich and others, are taken on board by positive psychology. So, and again, the, the very, she makes another important uh, point. She says, the, the we cannot take um, positive psychology's um, stance on values um, because they have a very neutral position on values. So she alerts us to the fact that um, they can, you know, we cannot treat these values as neutral. We have to see how these values are informed by religious, theological, uh, and other factors. So we cannot treat them as sort of value-free. Why is Linda Gask <laughs> happy to be sad? 
Yeah, yeah, because she's a professor, she's emeritus professor, and she herself has gone through, it's based upon a personal experience too. It's not a theoretical piece, so it is more autobiographical, her piece, where having gone through right from her childhood, she, uh, I've read her other book, the other, other Side of Silence or something. Uh, let me see if it's here. Yeah, just uh, this is the other side of Silas. Oh, this is the other book she has written. So I read this to understand more of her, and I met her, of course, in person too. And well, she, she, having gone through all this, and she's been she has been able to help because in psychiatry they don't talk about happiness. It's only in the last twenty years, um, you know. Um, I think the entry of happiness into psychiatry is very recent. They, they don't deal with happiness, that's what she said. In her own case, she was trying treating patients with mental disorders or trying to understand them, okay? And why she, she talks about um, sadness being positive. She talks about what is called productive sadness. And she is also very critical of positive psychology like Liz, uh, more so uh, not taking the socioeconomic factors into consideration when we talk about uh, uh, suffering. Suffering is, we cannot attribute that to one's own personality. There are other contributive factors which make suffering more intense and uh, more difficult. And it, it, the whole chapter is based on, on a life journey. Uh, so she has, and she also finds suffering to be redemptive, suffering to be therapeutic. So again, all these non-religious perspectives, including Linda, talk, talk about suffering being therapeutic. And of course, and you know, there are more Shakespearean tragedies than comedies. So it's, it's, a, it's somehow um, there has been a reluctance um, within positive psychology to take uh, suffering head on, which Paul Wong has done. Very, very beautifully, he talks about this therapy, deeper kind of happiness. And happiness that comes, something stands on a par uh, with the religious notion of happiness, where, uh, in other words, a kind of a positive detachment. Mm. Renounce and enjoy life. Mm. What does Paula McGee say about the role of health for happiness? Um, Paula McGee, um, uh, she's a uh, ex- and she's also a professor of nursing, and she looks at the concept of health from global, national, and local perspectives. And she also looks at health uh, in light of socioeconomic factors where power structures are at work. And also she brings to light that health and uh, happiness are seen as um, in binary terms, and she challenges this binary conception of uh, uh, health and happiness. If somebody is um, ill, does not mean they are unhappy. It's possibly they can be unhappy, but illness need not be associated with unhappiness, or that matter, disability need not be associated with unhappiness. And she challenges all these notions of disability, who decides what is normal and abnormal? So she raises all these very intricate, difficult questions. And she also speaks about, uh, towards the end of a chapter, if you can recall, 
that uh, it's these nurses who have given their life to improving the lives of others, they are least cared for as the UK situation shows us. I don't know about Canada. They're not paid well. And, and then she talks about self-care. That's extremely important. So self-care is also the well-being need not again be associated with uh, you know um, this this kind of a binary approach to well-being and happiness or well-being and disability. She challenges all these binary notions in her in her chapter. In short, okay. Hmm. Um, Ryan Craigan and David Speed uh, have a contribution the title of which is perhaps provocative, Religiosity and Happiness, Much Ado About Nothing. <laughs> what are they saying? Yeah, I found that quite interesting in one sense. They did a global survey um, uh, and they found, except the US, the link between religiosity and happiness happens to be quite thin, okay? This happens to be thin. And uh, but they, I think they discussed, if I can recall, they discussed uh, this world survey. There's no robust um, representation to, to say that religiosity brings happiness. And they contend, for example, they discuss in light of three things, religiosity in, in terms of identity, in terms of behavior, uh, I forget in terms of um, what else it could be. So they think most people, it's more indirect uh, it, 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 this is not to say uh, uh, religion cannot bring happiness, but generally in terms of the survey that they had conducted, they had conducted numerous surveys before that, before this too. So in terms of identity, see when we talk about uh, happiness in a country where one particular religion is predominant, of course they are supremely happy, I suppose. The minorities suffer persecution. That's their point, okay? One of the points. So so it's all relative in that sense. And uh, in terms of behavior, see some people go to church or mosque or to temple, perhaps to, to, to find some solace, but more importantly, people want to be part of community and there's some kind of a support when they go to these places. And that is the other argument. Mm. Fascinating. So that, so therefore, and there's no theorizing about religion and happiness. That's what they say. Hmm. Uh, what, um, actually, if I'm not mistaken, we've touched on pretty much every chapter. Maybe just say a quick word, or at least mention the authors of the chapters of the uh, Abrahamic contributions in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, respectively. Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, let me take that so that I, I get it. Okay. Um, I'm just taking the, the just say, okay. Sure thing. So humanism and the pursuit of happiness is by Andrew, Cop Andrew Copson. Uh, happiness and well-being in positive psychology by Liz Gulliford. Why I'm happy to feel sad by Linda Gask. Happiness and health by Paula McGee. Happiness and Judaism by Simon Dean. Happiness and well-being in Christianity by David McLaughlin. Happiness and well-being in Muslim scripture by Emil Dastmal Chin, Buddhism and Human Flourishing by Peter Harvey, uh, Happiness and Wellbeing from a Taoist Perspective, Yanixia Zawo, Understanding Happiness, Hindu Perspective by me, and Religiosity and Happiness, Much Other But Nothing by Ryan Craigan and David Speed. So 
all the most of these people are distinguished uh, specialists in their own respective fields. So I've been enormously enriched and humbled uh, by their contribution, and I, I, it has been quite an enriching uh, experience. What I want to emphasize, Raj, is that all these chapters are connected by certain themes and issues. My focus is that, not simply there's nothing called you know, uh, ultimate happiness or there's no one all-inclusive happiness to which we all talk about. See, even when we talk about God or the ultimate reality, we run into endless problems, especially when we talk about interreligious dialogue. I've been numerous times being asked by people, do you think, are we talking about the same ultimate reality? I said, I don't care anymore whether we are talking about the same ultimate reality or not. <laughs> you know, for the last 20 years of my life, dialogue has moved on, I'm not saying no, but this question of ultimate reality is a stumbling block in one sense. It's okay for the converted, but for most people, and it doesn't matter to me, I'm more interested in the quest rather than the destination. Similarly, when we come to happiness, there's nothing called happiness out there that we're all talking about. Happiness means different things to different people, and we may not even agree. Uh, the monistic understanding happiness will not make sense to someone else. The theistic understanding will not make much sense to a monist, or it'll make uh, some sense, but not absolute sense. So there's no, there's, this, this happiness is not a monolithic concept. So it can mean different things to different people. So in one sense, we're not talking, there's something out there common and we're all referring to that. That's why my focus has been on issues and concerns. Basically, happiness is not the absence of suffering. And all the chapters here talk about happiness being individual and collective, personal and interpersonal, talks about transcendent and transient. So all of them in their own respective ways highlight the interconnectedness of humanity. We may totally disagree as far as theological and metaphysical orientations are concerned. We'll never resolve it. People will discuss all the theological nuances year after year, generation after generation, books will be produced. And some people have more funding to be able to engage with them, okay? But in, in, in practice, what I found, this engagement with these chapters, with these authors, is that despite coming from different, from, from different what do you call it, different disciplines and different orientations, cultural, religious, metaphysical, whatever it is, but there has been some kind of, there are concurrences when they talk about these four issue, four or five issues, that we are extremely interconnected, and and unless uh, if if uh, uh, the question for me is, do we have to wait for metaphysical interpretations to be right in order to engage with with, with matters on the ground? Of course not. Hmm? Of course not. In insofar as insofar as. Yeah, and not coming from necessarily a reductionist 
perspective, but even if one is spiritual or has some religious convictions, one has to concede that uh, the ultimate truth, you know, uh, God, um, Brahmin, the divine, the supreme ontological reality, whatever that is for whomever, that is beyond the scope and perspective of day in and day out waking consciousness yeah. in this human body. And so what we are not, you know, the, the book is called uh, uh, Religious and Non-Religious Perspectives on Happiness. So, so this is a discourse of the ways in which we understand yeah. and engage with happiness. This is yeah. not about the goal. This is just yeah. about the path. Yeah, yeah, that that's very true. You you have summed up it quite well. The, my, my fascination is uh, that I found it much easier to work with non-religious people too, uh, effortlessly, because they are able to show compassion empathy, and all the things that religions talk about in, in, in a humane way, especially all the contributors to these, all these authors, uh, I could walk with them, you know what I mean? So that's a kind of a dialogue, uh, especially shared concerns. All the chapters reflect shared concerns. If you, in, my, in, in my introduction, I brought out that, you know what I mean? Yes, no, that's, that's fascinating. And, and um... I'm sure there'll be folks who will dive into this, uh, whether it's whether to whether because it will illumine their particular uh, perspective or religious traditional perspective on happiness, whether they're interested in in um, non-religious perspectives. But without question, there's plenty of food for thought in this collection of um, of, of essays for for a variety of listeners. So we are about time for today. So I will say finally, thank you very much for appearing on the podcast. So I did touch upon some of the, uh, you know, like, um, doesn't matter, I suppose, like Viktor Frankl, who talks about search for meaning, uh, to throw in uh, more word, but it's okay, doesn't matter, I suppose. You know, one, he, you know, he talks about uh, meaning-oriented suffering. Hmm. Uh, so I, I don't know, I didn't touch upon that. It, it, it's too vast a subject for me to touch upon everything. That's, that's perfectly fine. I, I think we have touched upon plenty for today. So... For those listening, we have been speaking about religious and non-religious perspectives on happiness and well-being, uh, a, a brand new Rutledge publication, details on the podcast notes. Keep well until next time. Keep listening, keep reading, and keep contemplating um, happiness. Take care.